לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. Hello and welcome to another edition of Parsha Talk. I'm Rabbi Elliot Malaman in Highland Park, New Jersey at the Highland Park Conservative Temple Congregation on Shaman and joining me my good friends Rabbi Barry Chesler, Solomon Check to Day School, Long Island and Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanovsky, the Anshay Chesed in New York City. I was in your shul, I was in your shul last week. Had I heard that. Time with the cantorial recital. Big shout out to Joshua Ehrlich. And uh, it was an amazing, amazing. You got, you got nice kids there. Nice shul. Beautiful, beautiful. And and you see that grand piano that was sitting there on the beam? Wasn't that amazing? Unbelievable. It was it was just a gorgeous evening, lots of music and Hey, do you do you know that the the uh of the three cantorial graduating cantorial students, one of them one of them, you know, was our cantorial intern here, one is Josh Ehrlich, who who you've known for many years and we've known from camp. And the other woman, Marilyn Akoshi, you remember her sons, Ethan and Jacob, they were both Yeah. Cantors. Yeah, just um it's great. And of course, you know, uh, well, what a great theme. Music, song, the song of the sea. The song of the sea is uh, the centerpiece of our Parsha this week, because this week is known as Shabbat Shira. Shabbat Shira, be- precisely because of the song of the sea. We'll get to it in a second, but just um, we have to just get the context here. B'nai Israel have left Egypt. They've baked matzah the day after they left Egypt. They arrive. Uh, and they, they're taking a securitous route. When Pharaoh sent the people out, God did not let them go the way of the land of the Philistines. He does not allow them to go on the coastal route, which would have been the easier route, maybe take a couple of days and you know walk up the coast. The coastal route was highly fortified. Since he was concerned that the people would regret or change their minds, having uh, being exposed to perhaps some embattlements, and they would have to, they would want to return, which of course is one of the themes in in, in the story. Go ahead, Barry. It's a perplexing thing, though, because the contention of the Torah is that they will see war, but they come out armed, right? They're chamushim, which most commentators understand as being armed. And instead, they go the Darach Yamsuf, where God will do the battle for them. Because God, in that arresting image that so many people find problematic from the song, is Ishmael Kama. So interesting, you know, because by the end of the Bible, by the end of the Torah, in, in Bamidbar, you, you go in the last chapters of Bamidbar, and it's one war after another war after another war. And of course, it's a it's a, a, a different people. These are the people that are coming out of Egypt, and those are the people going into the land of Israel. And uh, people coming out of Egypt, they're, they're broken. They're, the mental state, the spiritual state, the physical state is a state of brokenness, I think. And, I want to add something slightly different. It's not just that they're broken. They're children. They're immature. They're petulant. They complain like five- and six-year-olds. You know, it's too hot. 
I remember some scenes from when my children were younger. You know, the things that now they laugh about were unbearable at at a younger age. And that's how B'nai Israel is. Are they ready for their journey? I mean, is this what the story is about here? They're they're not ready. I you know, in my old age, I more and more am taken with the miraculous nature of the Exodus. That the whole point of the Torah, I think, is that it could not be done by human beings. It could only be done by God. Okay. I want to just look for a second about this Kikarovu. Uh, that, that God did not lead them up the coastal road. Um, ki karovu, ki it was near. Now, in in rabbinic interpretation, ki can mean lots of different things. It can mean if, it can mean because, it can mean behold. Um, so you you have a couple of ways of reading this. Barry was pointing in one direction. Um, you you can't lead them up the Philistines' route. You can't lead them up the co coast because they might see war, and and that that'll be a problem. We want to lead them someplace else, and as you, as you pointed out, Barrett, they're going to see war in those places too. So Rashi responds to this and say, the problem is, I didn't lead you up the Philistines' route, Kikaruhu, because it was so near that turning back would have been so easy. That the first bad thing that's going to happen. You're going to run around home. So I, that's what's going to happen. You're going to fight the Amalekites. You're going to fight everybody else's. You're going to come to the Red Sea. I want to put you in sufficiently far away um, that you got no chance to return. That's 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 Rashi's interpretation. It's not that they won't see war if they go the other way. They're going to see war either way. But I want to put you, I want to make you have sunken costs so you can't turn around. Um, I think Ibn Ezra says it in, in, a, in a slightly different way. Um, that that if they it's, it's more like what you said, Ibn Ezra's position is that if I take you off in this other direction, you know, you you might not see some of those bad things. I I think that that this Kikarohu, although it was near the the they didn't God didn't lead up the road, even though it was near, or because it was too near. Um, you know, I th I think that the one way to read it or one vibe is didn't lead you the easy way, it led you the hard way. It's going to be more growthful. It's going to be more demanding. And I think that sort of fits overall. You know, the book of Devarim opens up and says, you know, it's actually 11 days, just 11 days from Egypt to the promised land. And 40 years later, you're still rocking. You know, you've got, you've got so much growth to still have happening. Right. There's a reference, I think, in the Benesra that in the his commentary in Shemot, it's only 10 days. So they lost a day while they were wandering. Uh -huh. All right. So they're wandering and they're, they're going back and forth. And, it's, you know, if you look at some of the maps that depict the journey, it, it really has them zigzagging. And, of course, Pharaoh picks up on this and sees that they're, you know, confused and wants to chase after them. Vayudifum Yitzrayim Achareyem, verse 9, Egypt chases after them. Vayasigo otam chonim alayam. And they catch up to Israel encamped on the sea. And then it tells us that they have their, their first crisis. Pharaoh Ikriv. Pharaoh was getting closer. Israel looked and sees Egypt coming after them. They were terribly scared. And they cry out to God. And then they cry to Moshe. Was it for a lack of graves in Egypt that you took us to die in the desert? 
What did you do to us? It was so nice. It was so nice back in Egypt. Okay, some of our babies got thrown in the river, but we were fine. What did you do to us? It's better for us to, you know, to serve Egypt and die in the desert. And so here, I mean, what's so great about this verse? If you were to do a, a great verses, I, I'm... This is a great verse. It's ironic. It's slightly humorous. It's very serious. It encapsulates. The- why don't you give us? Why don't you give us the verse in 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 Mel Brooks or in Lenny uh, Bruce or? In- <laughs> Wait, you don't have enough graves in Egypt. It's, it's it's not the birth of Jewish humor, but it's close. And <laughs> so, and- what's their their problem is? that they don't have a concept of freedom because we know from elsewhere in scripture that it's better to be free than to be a slave. But they don't see it that way. They think it's better to be dead than to be free. Well, what they can't see, I mean, and this is the, you know, incredibly rich part of of this, this, you know, the, the, the wilderness journey of Am Yisrael, the incredibly rich part is... Exactly what you're saying, uh, that there they have been, you know, we said a couple weeks ago, you know, there's there, they had shortness of breath, or a little more poetically, they had very small spirits, and they didn't have the they didn't have the sense of what could be alternative. And so they said, Listen, I just 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 leave me to to serve Egypt instead of this terrible death in the wilderness. But actually, if you're gonna go someplace and if you're gonna have a mission. And you're going to serve a cause. You're going to serve God, which is a better thing than serving Pharaoh. Um, and you're going to make it to a promised land and achieve a destiny. It's going to be hard. And the, and the people just do not, at this early stage, have any sense of the why of where they're going or what they're heading towards. They can only just see, you know, the the mire that they're stuck in at this particular moment. So they cry. They cry out to God. And Moses gives them, I don't think, a particularly great answer. He says. You know, don't worry. You'll, you'll see God's salvation. Okay. No, because and, Moses could have gotten angry here, and he doesn't. Oh, you know, later okay. in the parsha, he's going to be very disturbed by the reaction. Okay. And he's so, going to fear so, he's going to get stoned. Basically, this is Moses as a pastor. He's trying to say, calm down. And, and of course, that may not be a good thing for him to say, because the very next verse, God says to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? The barrel B'nai Yisrael tell speak to them and go. So I would ask the, the theological question, which is, what's the theology here about in in terms of, you know, man, God, God, Moses, God, salvation, uh, uh, miracles, etc. Or or is is theology off the table here? Just just do it. Just go. Just do. Leave leave out the the prayer right now. There's a time for prayer. And a time for walking, and now's your time to walk. What would you? So that you know, I think that's Rashi's comment that it's not the time to stop and pray. You have to go, but it does lead us to wonder when is the best time to pray, which is not addressed here. But clearly, some kind of action is necessary because, contra what I said earlier, there is a human dimension to redemption. It's not, it can't be totally passive. And therefore, B'nai Israel has to do something in order to be redeemed. 
They can't wait for God to do everything. There's a great midrash that that the children of Israel sort of formed four groups at this at this moment of crisis, and there were those people who say, okay, 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 let's just go back to Egypt, and there are those people who say. Uh, let's commit suicide. Let's just jump into the ocean and commit suicide. And there are those people who say, no, let's fight the Egyptians. And there are those people who who say, you know, oh. let's let's pray to God. And and Moshe sort of counteracts in, in that Midrash, which I think appears in the Mechilta, the, the Mishnaic era commentary to Exodus, Moses kind of counters each one and says, listen, and each one of them is such a deep response to this crisis. Let's, I give up, I'm going to commit suicide, or I give up, let them take me prisoner, or let's just, you know, strike out and lash out in a violent rebellion or let's let God fix this for us. All of these are, you know, profound human responses and none of them are the right response. The the right response is figure out a way to walk forward and not into suicide, but still make the journey forward towards the destiny. And that's what Moshe has to do for, uh, for the people who, who are ready to like, just, just, you know, give up or, or collapse. Okay, so so now we, we we move to the scene of the splitting of the sea. God says to Moses, um, lift up the staff, stretch out your arm on the sea, and split it. The word, you split the sea, is also like the way you split wood. So that the people of Israel, the children of Israel, go through the sea on the dry land. And it goes on and on. It tells us about, you know, the storm. And, it, and it's it's um, beyond our capability to imagine. And, and here I'm going to pose this question, which is, what is the role of telling us, how does the story capture our imagination is it is it even possible to imagine and when we try to depict it uh visually either in a in a picture or in movies um do we ever get close to to this is and and if that if it's impossible to depict what's the what's the goal here of imagining this miracle. How does this miracle play out in our imaginations? I think is what I'm asking. How does it play out for you? So I, I think we have to keep, first of all, two things in in mind. Number one, there are actually two explanations for the splitting of the sea. There's the magical or miraculous one where Moses lifts up his staff, and there's also the natural explanation that God caused the strong east wind, the Ruach Kadim, to blow and hold the water back. And so even at this great miracle, there's an invitation to consider that the miracle is not the overturning of the natural order itself, but the way the people respond to it right before they sing the song of the sea. But the other thing is that the image is a complete overturn to the natural order because the water is held back and in effect is turned into dry land because the people have to walk through dry land, which is supposed to be wet, right? They're walking on the seabed, and the water is now appears to be dry because it's forming a wall, which we associate, I think, with brick, taking the image from the 
the Egyptian experience with us. Mm-hmm. And that's the image. It's that complete natural revolution that we're supposed to think about. So I want to, I want to, I've been thinking about this, um, you know, over the week during, you know, preparing for this Parsha. And, um, you know, when the Torah depicts the wall on the right, which, uh, as an image, is, a, is an, an astonishing image. I don't think of it necessarily as the the image in the movie, you know, in, in the Ten Commandments, where the wall, the water is like two walls like that. But I try to imagine this, like, like the wind is blowing at their backs, and that the wind, the force of the wind creates like a horseshoe around them. And so even though there's some water in front, they see the sides of the water and the water is being pushed in front of them. And this is playing itself out in my imagination because what happens is that the Egyptians come in and they enter the sea. They're entering water, okay? They're not entering dry land. In the movie, they have have the Egyptians coming in on dry land. That's wrong. The Egyptians coming in on, on the sea it's shallow, okay? They they come in, the water is shallow enough for them to ride their horses and chariots, okay? But then it gets a little deeper. Israel is in basically a bubble. It's like a the, they're, they're in an enclosed, cocoon-like bubble. This is in my imagination. This is how it happened? This is how it happened, totally, totally. <laughs> you have to get, make sure you get the film developed, Elliot. Exactly. <laughs> But I, what I'm saying is, is that this the the miracle is beyond depiction, and so therefore, almost anything is possible in your imagination. Well, except again, you know, what I think is important to consider is that I don't get the sense reading Sefer Shmo, the Book of Exodus, that the Israelites get wet. But yeah. the midrash, of course, is that they do because Nachshon dives in. But then the ceasefire so, so, has separated you. So listen, the the the, the, the uh, our vast audience may not have all the Nakshon. Like three hundred people, by the so, way. So so Ben, why don't you tell that story because that's a very vivid midrashic passage. So the question is that what what's going to be? They're being pursued by the Egyptians, and they're confronting the sea, and so. Nachshon, who's the prince of the tribe of Judah, dives in. I think up to his neck, if I remember That's correctly. Right. It's a great and the then the water splits. Right. And then the water splits. Mm-hmm. Until Nachshon actually demonstrated his faith in God, the water was resistant. And once he dives in, the waters recede and everyone else can follow him. But and, and it says in Israel, this is one of those verses that that's, that, that that for which that midrash is an excellent illustration, is is that the Bnei Israel, um, they were walking in the midst of the of the of the sea, but it was for them dry land. There was like some some you know superhuman faith. Uh, willingness to go in. So yeah, I think I think that's right. They get wet. You know, there's a, a couple of things that this conversation has stimulated in me. One, Barry points out quite correctly that um, 
it's kind of two explanations. One is a total miracle, and one is, you know, the, Moses with the magic trick and the sea just splits. But then there's also the 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 more comparatively more naturalistic one, which is also a miracle that God makes a wind blow, and the wind causes the sea to split. I, it, it's almost at a, at a deep level, all the way back to the Bible. You have two, you have the Akivan and Yishmaelian, so to speak. You know, you the, the more mystical to the more rationalistic impulses in in this tradition that you know that some are like yeah yeah god just took over and everything was different or the the slightly more rationalistic one that says no no stuff happens through the workings of the world and and we see the divine hand in here but but you know don't don't ask me to believe that something totally out there out of the realm of my experience so i think that both of those are present in our tradition Maimonides, for example, just loves the second one. He says God doesn't do God doesn't do stuff. God works through Nature. naturalistic means, and and we we recognize that in lots of Torah st stories. But Elliot, then your point also stimulated me to think that in that more mystical vein, that more mythic vein, these big stories, um, the the need that we readers or we Jews who've inherited the stories have to try to picture something beyond imagination, like you know, whether it's the Har Sinai, whether it's the, the revelation at Sinai or the manna in the desert or the or the sea splitting or all of the stuff that, that goes on. Like I, I think that one of the ways in which the Torah works so well is to stimulate us to real, you know, free play of imagination in a way that that's part of religion too, right? The part of religion that says, you know, by the way, I'd like you to imagine what happens after you die, and I'd like you to imagine that sometime at the beginning of time it was like this and that, and at the end of the time it's going to be like that and this, and, and you know, all the mythic stories that we love, part of the reason that we love them is that they speak to us in that realm of fantasy and of imagination, and, and that makes the Bible great literature too. So let me go in this direction with you, which is, you know, we're entering an era in human history where we can depict things in virtual reality, uh, and we're going to be getting much better at that in, 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 in our lifetimes. In the next 10 to 20 years, you'll be able to put on a pair of goggles and pretend and, and imagine that you are there. I, I gave this sermon on Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur or whatever, you know, you know, that's that's going to be a, a not just a, a figure of speech that a person should see themselves. You're going to be able to put a pair of goggles on and and do the avoda service in the temple okay I, I guarantee within your lifetime someone will create that kind of virtual reality they already have it uh, you know i'm going to be in israel in a couple of weeks so i'm going to go to the exhibit at the um the, the israel museum on the aleppo synagogue which is a virtual reality tour of the aleppo synagogue which has been you know destroyed and so here what i'm saying is that is it possible does the text demand of us to go into virtual reality or to imagine reality, to imagine it on our own terms and and to then make it an allegory? Because it's it there's no way that we will ever be able to imagine these experiences and live these experiences. And as much as we want, we we I think we crave on some level of our consciousness. A reenactment. Wouldn't you like to go back in time and be? I don't know. Pick, so, pick, so just for just for fun here. What's, what's the what's the like? What's the scene in the ta Tanakh? Who's the person in the Tanakh that you would that you with if you had your your virtual reality goggles or your time machine or what? Like, where would you go? I'd like to go. To I have no. I would go not in the Tanakh, but to the Second Temple on Yom Kippur. Okay. 
I would like to go to Har Moria and, and kind of just be an, a witness. I, I wrote this whole play about it this year. I want to see if I was right. <laughs> I, I would, I would, it's, it's funny that I, I would, uh, I, I think that I would pick uh, Har Sinai, although maybe I would pick, you know, Har, Har Sinai obviously is, is Exodus 19 with all the pyrotechnics, but it's also the golden calf right after and the reconciliation of the 13 Midot. Like, I think the, these scenes are like the most intense. I would love to. to see. So. It's, it's very interesting that we all didn't choose this the the splitting of the sea you well, know this, what? Is fabulous. this is this is fabulous it's too it's too windy it's too... <laughs> this is fabulous and and, and, I, like the and I suggested i suggested two weeks ago when we were recording the the uh the 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 finding of moshe in the river with his name moshe the one who brings out of the water that the whole story is really oriented moshe as a character of yamshani mimayim rabim says says the song draws me out of the wild water draws me out of the of the of the raging water that getting drawn through the raging water is the central part of the exodus on a little at least on some part on a literary level and so it's big it's really 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 big that that this is the capstone of their leaving egypt and and yet and i would say by the way this is why i, I feel like you know this this is kind of the pesach shavuot uh uh you know, polarity or contrast or dialectic, like, is it getting away from the bad or is it getting oriented towards the good? Is it getting away from Egypt or is it getting the Torah at Sinai? So this is great. This is huge. This is massive. This is this does call upon all our powers of imagination. And, and religiously speaking, I'm kind of more interested in Yitro than I am Bishalach. Interesting. I... I um... I think I think it, it it commands a lot of imaginative attention, um, but it doesn't direct how we live. Maybe or, or 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 does it? It's redemption, but it's it's it doesn't tell me what to do when I get up in the morning. Well, I think it's unique. First of all, it's not an event that's going to be repeated, but we do think that Sinai can be repeated in some way. Um, and I believe you once said about the Akedah that a bris is a kind of Akedah Yitzchak. Yeah, yeah. All right. Um, let's, well, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. So so we get through the sea. They sing the song. I guess we're not, we're not going to focus on the song other than to say what a remarkable piece of literature, what a remarkable piece of biblical poetry. If, uh, if, if we're putting on the you know academic study of the Bible, um, this is really one of the oldest layers of 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 the bible really one of the oldest layers um and uh everything kind of built up around it which well, I, I was if I, if I could throw in one little but, thing on like this um which i which i have heard and uh, makes sense to me um an idea that um the miriam song may be the oldest thing because she just says, that's, that's the whole thing that Miriam, the sister of Aaron, the, Miriam, the prophet, the sister of Aaron, takes the drum in her hand and she, and all the women come out after her with, with drums and dancing. And she calls to them in a, in a, in a uh, antiphonal, what is that called? Call and response kind of way. Uh, gives sings the Lord for his triumph gloriously, horse and rider he hurled into the sea. And that's, of course, in the long song as well, which would suggest 
that if the Torah, like the the, the part that is the, the long song, seems like a development of the fragment that is in Miriam's. Exactly. So so it's probably the oldest, and, and the, or certainly among the oldest, along with the song of Deborah, which is the Haftarah, which is also pretty fabulous. And and like, you know, the song of Deborah is a little hard to, to figure out because it's so archaic. Um, but the, the, the long song of 15 is is also like a bit of a compound. There's like a few things that don't quite fit, and and it says that it's it speaks as if the temple has already been built, and the kings of Canaan are are filled with dread. So it, there's it's very very old, and it's a little bit uh, you know cobbled together perhaps from different very very old things. That's right. So it's, it should it's be pointed out for our listeners that Miriam is actually the first female cantor because she led That's the congregation right. song. Carol Chesler has Carol Chesler is one of the Benod Miriam. Okay, let's let's end on the mana note because uh, in this parsha the the people start complaining as they are wont to do, and uh, they have no food and they have no nothing to drink. But we'll focus on the food, and they get this is the first appearance of mana mana, which is in chapter uh, sixteen. The people are are told that that God will will bring this. They, they have restrictions on it, Omer Lagogola, they're supposed to collect only a certain measure of it, and that um, they're, they're to Bayoma Shishi, I'm reading verse 22, they're to get a second portion, two Omers for one person, and and that's what, what, is, what happens, and uh, uh, this is the, the first, there's a proto-Shabbat kind of experience here, uh, Barry, I want to I want to take your comments here that you reflected on, in terms of um, this as beginnings, and there's a Edenesque quality to this. Which is so it was striking when I was reading the parsha earlier that the story of Mana reminds one of the Garden of Eden because each story has a dietary law, a prohibition about what one can eat that. On the face of it, seems very easy to observe, but is almost immediately broken. And um, it's it's striking because, in the sense, the Bnei Israel is looking for a kind of Eden Edenic moment, and they don't quite achieve it. But you know, Elliot, your introductory words to this part reminded mm -hmm. me that we have two kinds of bread that are part of our story here. We have matzah which becomes the bread of freedom from last week. And we have the man, which in a sense is going to be the bread of affliction because the people are going to sit with it and they're going to be complain about it, that that's all they're going to have. And it, it kind of reminds us, I think, that what's really important is not necessarily what we think we have, but what we actually have. I would go in a different direction with man. I would say that that Pesach is the matzah bread, the unleavened, and mana is the shavuot bread. It's it's the the leavened bread. Mana uh, shavuot. I, I so think, it's the bread that brings us to Sinai. That's and the and there there are all sorts of um, little little connections between mana and shavuot that that are not really terribly developed in in our tradition. But one in particular that there's sweetness and it's dairyish. And that's what you eat dairy for, and and to a certain and it's an extent, omer. and it's an omer, right? So there's a lots of little hints there about shavuot in the mana. This is this is, and I'll give you one more, by the way. But this is um, 
th this is true, but I think Barry's point, I think, is, is also very well taken because, you know, they're not, they're not, and, and maybe this is the intersection, maybe where I'll, where I'll go with this, maybe the intersection of your two points. Um, they do get fed as, as Adam and Chava are fed in the Garden of Eden, and that does keep them ch childlike, and they they love it, but they resent it because it's lechem haklokel, this this crappy, you know, crappy, disgusting food, even though it, it does have all those rich associations. But the, you know, w when do they stop eating manna? Um, it, it says when they get it here that it's ad boam aleritz no shavit until they reach the settled land. And then in, in Joshua chapter 5, when they finally make it to the land of Israel, it says, um, and they ate on the day after the Passover offering. They ate of the produce of the country, unleavened bread and parched grain. Yeah. And the next day the manna stopped. When they ate the actual produce of the land. And the children of Israel had no more manna. And they ate from the produce of the land of Canaan in that year, which is to say that the desert time is not real time. It's not. It's it, this part is Edenic. Um, it's it's not in the world as we live in it. God just gives you food, but when you're going to have to go into the land, you are going to have to work. You're going to have to be farmers. You're going to have to plant. You're going to have to reap. You're going to have to to do all the stuff that is involved in food preparation. And I think perhaps that gives us an intersection of your two points because. Back there in 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 the, the desert, um, you know, God takes care of you in an extraordinary miraculous way. But that's not where you're supposed to end up. You're supposed to end up at Shavuot when you bring the new grain of the year and you 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 celebrate what you have achieved um, in 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 your agricultural produce, which feels to me like a real affirmation of human agency, strength, creativity, capability, all, all of the things that we're, we're, we're um, adequate to perform for ourselves, which, which God ultimately wants us to, to be God's partners and, and, and be all those things. So, so I feel like manna is necessary at stage one, but, but not helpful past stage one. And so what we might say is that manna is a provisional provision. It's meant for a limited amount of time. But matzah is meant for eternity. So, so mana is the bread of dependence, and matzah is the bread of independence. Very nice, <laughs> nicely done. Okay, okay, very good. Just see, you can get. So, no, but note, note, by the way, you 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 said Elliot, there's a kind of a proto Shabbat. This is this is like huge, right? Um, they're not even at Sinai yet, and there is already an expectation. That the rhythm includes Shabbat. It's absolutely fascinating. I think that there's this that it's it's really your the, the that framing. I think is is the the setting of of a tone for the the whole story, the whole the whole life of of Israel is really set on that rhythm, and the rhythm of the week, the rhythm of Parsha, the rhythm of the Parsha talk. We've come to the conclusion of our time. So it goes by so quickly, like the splitting of the sea. It stays with us, though. What a, <laughs> thank you. Thank you to our listeners, our viewers, devoted people. You know, the Ramad, Ramad dinner's coming up. Send in a greeting in honor of us. <laughs> For the Parsha Talk. <laughs>
Anyway, we're going to see you next time. Thank you so much for watching and listening. Look forward to seeing you. In the meantime, Shabbat Shalom and joy. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom.